ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. This is the NT Country Hour on ABC Radio Darwin and the Northern Territory. G'day there, Dan Fitzgerald with you for the Country Hour on this Wednesday. Hope your afternoon's treating you well. On the show today, what are Santos's chances of delivering its first gas from the Barossa field by next year, its own deadline? I think that's an ambitious target now, given all of the issues they've had. It's a possibility, but I think 2026 is a more realistic target from, from what we see. Yeah, what do all these delays mean for the company? And it's that time of year in Catherine to start spraying gamba grass. So we'll have some advice for you soon. And also today, we're going to be talking rock lobsters and the big problem of cannibalism. Lobsters, like humans, like to eat lobsters, unfortunately. Yes, so when they're, particularly when they're juveniles, um, they unfortunately have a tendency to attack each other when they molt. So that's a real significant challenge. Yeah, lobsters, they're considered the holy grail of aquaculture, but they're that big problem in the way of how do you get them to stop eating each other. There's a lot of people working on it, and we'll talk about that today. First up today, did you know that there's over 900 old mine sites scattered across the Northern Territory. Now, some of these are pretty small. They're hand-dug shafts from way back in the 1800s, but some of them are other sort of larger open-cut pits, and a lot of them, well, they've just been left from when the last person stopped mining there, and they're just holes in the ground, which can be dangerous. And over the last 12 months, an NT government contractor has been assessing these legacy mines for safety issues, and... They've identified a whole bunch of risks. Um, Director of Mining Remediation, Joni Woolard, explains just what these sort of legacy mines look like and what's being done about them. So these are mainly small-scale mining sites. So within the legacy mine space, we look at a whole range of sites from large complex mine sites all the way down to, say, an individual shaft or an area where someone's done a little bit of digging but haven't had a big impact. It can seem quite overwhelming when we say there's over 900 potential legacy mines across the Territory. However, I think it's really important that we note that most of those are of these small scale. There aren't too many of the major mines that have significant environmental impacts. What the Small Mines Program is looking at is really looking at those historical mining activities that were done quite a long time ago. And they're mainly the the small shafts, the adits. There's some old historical workings, there's head frames, there's a little bit of infrastructure, that sort of thing. And there's been a few legacy mine sites around Tennant Creek that have been identified as having some safety risks. How are they going to be mitigated? So in 2022, we outsourced to a consultant to undertake a review of the work of the sites around Tennant Creek. That work identified quite a few. I think it was around 344 legacy features from 71 small mines. And a number of those were considered to be risky, to present a risk to public safety. And when I'm talking about that risk, 
a lot of these sites are just out in the bush. Sometimes you would have very little awareness that they were around until you walk up onto them. And when you've got waste rock, unstable surfaces, they can present a risk to people tripping over and falling into them. You've got old degraded infrastructure, say for example a head frame for an old mine shaft. It's tempting to go and climb on them, which we don't recommend, but they can present public safety risks. So at the moment we have a tender that's out. It's advertised at the moment, closing on the 19th of December. And that tender will be looking at addressing the risks that were identified around Tennant Creek. So that will involve backfilling almost 150 open mine workings, so open shafts. It isn't possible to backfill all of them for various reasons. They might be too deep, it might not be safe to do that, or there might not be the material available. So we're also looking at installing covers over about 30 of those mine shafts. And there's almost 32 adits, which are the horizontal workings. So we're putting grates over those as well. And how much, how much does this all cost and who's going to be forking out for it? The cost, we have had some preliminary estimates, but we're really looking at working with the market to find out what that genuinely will cost. But I think what... The main point is, is that this is not being funded by the taxpayer. So over the last 20 to 30 years, the expectations on the mining industry have changed significantly. That's both from society and from a regulatory perspective. Mining op operators now are required to pay a security and that security is put in place. It's a bit like a bond on a rental property. So if you don't do the right thing at the end of your mine life, it's there so government can step up and do the work so that it's not at the taxpayer's expense. In addition to paying that security, mining operators also have to pay a 1% annual levy on their security, which is used to fund the work we're doing. That money is held in the Mining Remediation Fund or MRF, and that MRF is used by the Legacy Mines Unit and that's how we implement these works. So it's almost like the levy that's being paid by mining operators now is being used to address the historical impacts from mining. And some more Legacy Mines are going to be inspected around the top end this year. Uh, what are you expecting to find there? The program of works for this year is focusing around Catherine and the Darwin Rural Region. We expect once again to find quite a, an inventory of these legacy mines features. And what I'd really like to note here is that we always work with the landholders before we access land. So it's really important that we contact our landowners, make sure they're aware of what we're doing and that will be done predominantly through the contractor, Ecocons, and they will contact the landowners before they go out on site to do their site inspections. The site inspections are really about going out, having a look at the site. They do fly a drone to make sure we've got some really good imagery and get some details about what those legacy features are. That might be the depth of a shaft, how deep it is, if there's any waste rock material around that could be used for backfill, what is the condition of the, 
the collar on the shaft? Is it just waste rock? Is it concrete? Is it quite stable? That sort of information. Joni Woolard, she's a Director of Mining Remediation at the Department of Industry, speaking there about this audit of small mine sites right across the Northern Territory. As she said there, more than 900, some of them dating back to the late 1800s, which was sort of hand dug, a lot of them around Pine Creek. Uh, much of them are going to be assessed this year. And, uh, yeah, a lot of work to do to make sure they're all safe. It is mm, 21 to 1. Hello, my name's Al from Humpty Doo Sunflowers, and you're listening to The Country Hour. And you're with me, Dan Fitzgerald, on The Country Hour. We're streaming today via ABC Radio Darwin or also on the ABC Listen app. And can you always catch us via the podcast, which is also up on the ABC Listen app or anywhere else you get your podcasts on your phone. Just search for Northern Territory Country Hour and you can catch any of our programs there. Well, Santos is unlikely to meet its target of supplying first gas from its Barossa project by 2025, according to one gas industry analyst. Santos is forging ahead with its new gas field out to the north of Darwin after a federal court ruling this week ruled that it was allowed to continue construction on an undersea pipeline. That was challenged by a group of Tiwi traditional owners... That and some other cases caused uh, quite a bit of delay for Santos. Wood McKenzie, senior analyst Anne Forbes, she says, Santos, it'll probably have a difficult time of delivering its first gas by next year. I think that's an ambitious target now, given all of the issues they've had. Working in their favour is the fact that their FPSO, the, the floating uh, vessel that will receive the, the liquid hydrocarbons from their field, is is really uh, very much on track for being ready in time. So that's definitely within their favour. They had already started drilling. They had already started pipe play, we think. So it's a possibility, but I think 2026 is a more realistic target from, from what we see. What happens if Santos doesn't meet that deadline? They will have a delay. They'll have a gap in their cash flow. Um, as a company, they will um, potentially have some extra costs to deal with. Currently, they have um, a plant in Darwin called DLNG, a liquefied natural gas plant that is uh, standing empty since uh, the Bayou Undan field ran out very late last year. So they have an empty gas processing plant. Obviously, the sooner they can fill that with gas, the sooner they can get some cash flow in, the better for them as a company. And just how much has this whole delay uh, to the project potentially cost Santos? Yeah, that's a good question. It's it's really hard to, to work that out. And there are some ranges of costs out there. We think that the extra, the, the drill rig sitting idle was costing them around 10 million a month, something like that. We also know that they had a couple of pipe lay vessels that were kind of sitting waiting as well. So there is additional cost there. They will have some contingency built into their project costing as well. The last update we had from Santos is that they haven't blown their budget, but I think it, it will be very tough for them to keep within their budget now, given all these extra costs. We would expect a bit of additional uh, capital spend on this project. Santos does, does still have some approvals to go through 
uh, for example, it hasn't got full approval or FID for its proposed carbon capture and storage project at Bayou Undan, which it needs for Barossa. How much is things still up in the air for Santos? Um, yeah, so they don't have every single approval. The the really kind of time critical approvals have come through, and that's that's the pipe play, that's the drilling. Now the, the boat, the FPSO, is very much on target as well. But yes, you're right. There are some things that are going to potentially um, slow them down. There are other approvals they need offshore Australia, but there are also their carbon capture storage, which goes along with Barossa. So the complicating factor for Bayou and Dan CCS or carbon capture storage project is that that's actually in offshore Timor-Leste. So they're going to have to pipe CO2 from Darwin um, across country borders into Timor-Leste for sequestration. Some of the legislation for that has actually just is just starting to come through now. So that's great. That's very helpful. It doesn't have FID yet, but we see that coming. I think um, it's very much a required project, and a number of other oil and gas projects within Australia are kind of banking on that project coming through in order to sequester um, other CO2 um, as well. I think. It's unlikely Bayou Indan CCS will be ready in time for the startup of Barossa. Um, and so what that means is, especially under the amended safeguard mechanism legislation in Australia, Barossa will need to um, effectively pay for its emissions. They'll need to buy some kind of carbon credits in the beginning in order to deal with those emissions before Bayou Indan is, is up and running. And that's not likely to be cheap given the the scope and the CO2 content of the Barossa gas? So Barossa gas is relatively high in CO2, that's right. So they will need to buy, um, yes, a decent number of, of carbon credits. At the moment, the way we look at it is it would actually be cheaper for them to buy the carbon credits at the prices there are at the moment than to do the CCS project. So at one level, the CCS project is very much a kind of good corporate citizen project. It's, it would likely cost them more in terms of dollars per tonne of CO2 than just buying offsets. But actually, obviously, clearly, it's better to to really have those resource, that CO2 resource sequestered rather than vented and then just paid for effectively. And while all of this is going on, Santos is actually in some early stage merger talks with another huge gas producer, Woodside. Do you think that's likely to go through? Um, it's an interesting one. It's a really interesting one at the moment. We've actually seen quite a lot of sort of mega mergers in the oil and gas realm and, and an idea that, that bigger is better. So, for example, Chevron and Hess, two really huge oil and gas companies in the US, have merged with each other. And we've seen a few other um, particularly US-centric kind of uh, mergers between really quite large already oil and gas companies. So in terms of a world of, of scale and bigger is better, a merger looks, you know, helpful for the two of them. They would become the single big Australian operator. There are some downsides to this as well. One of them is that they would be very exposed in terms of um, a lot of their um, acreage and projects would all be in Australia. And we've seen recently that there are some issues with operating in Australia um, in terms of things like potential for sovereign risk, uh, uh, the EPs, the environmental approvals not coming through in a timely manner, um, cost blowouts and things like that potential for. So 
I think as well, Santos is not doing potentially as well as Woodside, but Santos shareholders will want to make sure that they get a decent price for the company. And I think that's what it will come down to is can, could everybody agree on a, on a price for Santos in this kind of combined entity? Anne Forbes, she's a senior analyst at Wood Mackenzie, speaking there about Santos, uh, that big merger that's potentially on the cards with Woodside, and also the company's chances of delivering its first gas from Barossa by next year. Now, Santos's win in the federal court has seen the gas industry continue to push for reform of the offshore approvals process, especially to clarify how Indigenous groups are consulted. Um, If you want to read more on that story, just head online to ABC News and you can read a story there by the ABC's Samantha Dick. Well, Australia's biggest thoroughbred sale has wrapped up on the Gold Coast. The Magic Million sale this year grossed over $239 million dollars. The average price was about $214,000 for a horse. There was an 84% clearance rate over the nearly 1,500 horses on offer. Um, Barry Bowditch is Magic Millions Managing Director. He told Amelia Bernasconi it's been a big week. I think this year was a the top end was very very strong in the marketplace. I think a lot of confidence here in the industry, especially here in Australia. Um, we had some twenty three yearlings make over a million dollars, so that's the most we've ever had. I think uh, you know the Hunter Valley Farms really dominated again with like the top four horses all being sold by Hunter Valley Farms. Um, top price of two point one million sold by Coolmore Stud for a filly by. Wooten Bassett out of Avantage, who was bought by uh, Tiaka Stud in New Zealand, and uh, they'll look to race that horse in, in Victoria, I believe. You know, all in all, it was just very, very strong bidding. Um, Sejan Ho Stud from the Hunter Valley had $7 million horses, which is a new record for any one vendor at the Magic Mean Geeling Sale. Let's look at some of those maybe more affordable buyers, if I can put it that way. But, yeah, was there any, any sales that took your eye and you thought someone's just snagged a bargain? Look, it's hard to pinpoint. There's so much of that. When you have such a big catalogue of some, what do we got? What do we had? 1,468 yearlings. I think the cheapest horse last, at, during the sale has been 8,000, I believe. Um, you know, there's so many to choose from. I think, you know, when you come to Magic Means, the beauty of it is that, you know, because there's so many horses catalogued, there is such an opportunity to find bargains and find values. And we are finding in the market this year, you know, the lower to middle end has has probably softened a little bit more so i think given that there's there's plenty of bargains out there albeit you know we can talk about the big numbers all day and um you can still find a bargain but i think statistically speaking you know the sales only off two percent or less from last year which is um which is unbelievable given the current economic climate we certainly saw, like you said, Tiako Racing uh, very active this this year, lots of domestic buyers as well. Uh, what about globally? We know there's always interest. Were there any changes to those trends for 2024? No, not particularly. We had a, we had a new buyer from America that bought a filly for $1.7 million, which was fantastic. I think New Zealand was stronger. They bought some 34 yearlings. Hong Kong bought, uh, I think, you know, 36 in book one, uh, America bought 11 all up. Then there was interest from Japan and the United Kingdom as well. So all in all, I think, you know, the um, international spend was was very strong. We had a lot of international guests here. And, you know, obviously it's it's all part of the the, um, the experience. They come here to the Gold Coast, they enjoy their time, and, and, and we hope that they're able to buy a horse, whether that to be raced here in Australia or taken back to their own jurisdiction. 
Barry Bowditch, he's managing director of the Magic Millions horse sale there on the Gold Coast. Just repeating the sale, it grossed $239 million. That's a it's a lot of money spent on horses. Almost $214,000 was the average price. I'm Jack A. Neil Valentine. I'm ringing at Harkada Station and I'm originally from Kalabi in Queensland. And I listen to the country here. With all the rain over the top end and around the Catherine region, unfortunately that means there's going to be a lot of gamber grass getting going. And it's that time of the year when it is the best time to grow, to spray gamber, weather permitting of course. Brad Saw from the Weed Management Branch in K-Town, he says local landholders are really starting to get into their gamber control. Yeah, we're starting to get calls on gamber grass. It's definitely starting to pop, pop its head up. Um, people ring up about how to uh, control it. And uh, at the moment, we're doing the GAP program that we're handing out herbicides, herbicide for for um, landowners and equipment to help them with that, that issue. Uh, gamber grass is starting to come up now. So if you're proactive and you know what it looks like, you can really start hitting the gamma grass now, um, getting getting it before it's even set seed and and take, takes hold. How do you think this year is going to go in terms of weed um, control? It depends on the wet season, really. Um, obviously, uh, the bigger the wet, um, the bigger the wet, the more... Um, Active growing the plants will be um, and uh, in some cases you can't get to the plant at the right time so um, just because of the where it is so you just have to wait till it dries out so yeah that's a big something you have to take in, con, into concern when you're looking at weed management is, is this something that you can advise people maybe on what they can do to also manage their weed problem so just be proactive and keeping your eye out and know where where if you're moving in hay or moving in cattle um with putting them in an area where you know that you can go and check for weeds coming up in in after the rains brad saw he's from the weed management branch in catherine and he was speaking there to jan kahoot our reporter in town and if you've got some gamber grass on your property, you can always get some advice from the weed management branch. There's also plenty of resources available, including free herbicide for people around Catherine and the Darwin region. Uh, your best bet is just to contact your local weeds branch and they'll have all the information there for you. We're coming up to the one o'clock news. After that, we'll be speaking with the Weather Bureau. There's plenty going on. There's warnings about. There's severe weather warnings for much of the top end and all the way down into the Barclay region. There's also some flood warnings out for the Victoria River and for the Daly River. We'll be talking about it all on the weather after about five minutes' time. My name is James Gorry from Trainsafe NT. 
just before you drive out bush, just do a quick inspection under your car or under the bonnet. So just keeping vehicles clean so we're not spreading biohazards, soil diseases or weeds. And enjoy listening to the Country Hour. Dan Fitzgerald is my name. Thanks a lot for your company. And speaking of driving, if you were planning on driving to the west from the top end, well, today or in the next few days, more than likely, your chances aren't looking good. The Victoria Highway is currently closed between the Buntine Highway intersection and the Western Australian border. understand there's water over the road in quite a number of places and there's going to be plenty more rain to come in that region, there's currently a flood warning out for the Victoria River. There's another one for the Daly River. And there is a severe weather warning for heavy rainfall and damaging winds right across the top end down all the way to Tennant Creekway. So, yeah, just repeating that, the Victoria Highway currently closed between the Buntine Highway intersection and the Western Australian border. Time now to take a look at the weather. We've got Rebecca Patrick on the line. How are you, Rebecca? Yeah, I'm good. Thank you, Dan. That's good. Um, let's have a look at some rainfall figures from overnight. Uh, a few of the, well, with some of the larger totals. Yeah, we have had some quite big totals, uh, particularly around the Daly River area and also uh, over the Gregory District uh, around the Victoria River. Um, highest was Gawley with 204 millimetres. Uh, over the, the daily upstream from um, the Nau community. Uh, in the Gregory District, Townsend Creek has come in with 166 millimetres, so some quite large totals, um, a number of places exceeding 100 millimetres in those two areas. Um, yeah, so we do have uh, flood watch uh, current for large parts of the, the territory, um, northern parts of the territory, as well as a severe weather warning current um, that now uh, extends down as far as Tennant Creek as well. So uh, are expecting further heavy rainfall through those areas as well as um, potential for damaging winds across the north parts of the top end with the monsoon. And there is a moderate flood warning out for the Daly River. Uh, the Daly River expected to reach that moderate level by tomorrow afternoon sometime. What do people there need to know? Yeah, that's right. So um, that the river is uh, heading uh, upwards. Uh, we are expecting that to exceed minor flood level um, to, tonight or later this evening um, with that uh, moderate uh, flood level expected to be reached tomorrow afternoon. And when is uh, when is all this rain and wind likely to ease up? It does look like we're going to be having the monsoon um, pretty much for the next week. Uh, in terms of this low pressure system, uh, it is going to be fairly slow moving over the next few days. Uh, it's currently west of um, Daly Waters, uh, moving very slowly to the east at the moment, but we'll be in that general area uh, until at least the weekend. So we are expecting quite heavy rainfall through those areas for the next several days. Um, with these squally conditions across the northern parts of the top end, um, might see some easing um, 
next week. Uh, but, yeah, certainly uh, expecting similar conditions to continue for the next few days. And there hasn't been a huge amount of rain in the Darwin region, just a mostly wind. Is there likely to be much more rain? Yeah, with those um, those showers, squalls moving through relatively quickly, haven't seen too much rainfall in that Darwin area um, around the t- maybe tw- 10 to 30 millimetre range through there, um, just with those uh, showers moving through quite quickly. Um, so, yeah, it probably just takes um, a heavier thunderstorm to bring a bit more rainfall, but at this stage the focus for that heavier rainfall is is further south of of Adelaide River. And it's still fairly warm in Alice Springs and Central Australia. When are things likely to to ease up? Yeah, so um, seeing those temperatures up around that 40 degree mark uh, in southern parts of the Territory, it is um, quite different to the the north at the moment. Um, So Alice Springs today forecast the top of 37 and we are expecting those temperatures to hover around those high 30s um, throughout the next week so not too much relief in sight okay thanks for the update rebecca not a problem thanks dan rebecca patrick there at the weather bureau it is 11 minutes past one here on the country hour Wet season storms are spectacular, but they need to be treated with respect as they can bring heavy rain, winds, lightning strikes and flash flooding. So if a storm hits, stay indoors to keep safe. Secure your pets, unplug appliances and don't use your landline phone. Have your emergency kit prepared, especially with a torch or lantern in case the power goes out. And keep listening for updates to ABC Radio Darwin, your emergency broadcaster. And you're tuned in to The Country Hour. My name is Dan Fitzgerald. Thanks a lot for your company. Well, they've been described as the holy grail of aquaculture, but there's still a few challenges in the way for those seeking to farm tropical rock lobsters. Now, one of those challenges is cannibalism. It turns out lobsters love to eat each other. Quinn Fitzgibbon and his team from the University of Tasmania have been working hard to find a solution to this problem, Matt Brand caught up with him at the World Aquaculture Conference. Internationally, lobsters, and particularly tropical lobsters, are considered one of the holy grails of aquaculture. It's simply because they're so valuable and the fisheries is fully exploited. Um, and, um, but they're, they're really difficult to farm and we're making a lot of progress in that space. Yeah, a lot of challenges to farm them, in particular cannibalism. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, look, uh, lobsters like humans like to eat lobsters, unfortunately. Yes, so when they're, particularly when they're juveniles, um, they unfortunately have a tendency to attack each other when they molt. And so when the animal molts, it uh, is soft and vulnerable and its other buddies in the tank actually think it might be quite tasty at that time. So that's a real significant challenge. How bad, percentage-wise? Oh, look, at the moment, uh, we do a lot of research in this space. We've got PhD students focusing on this entirely, and we've shown that one in four molting events get attacked, so it's quite a lot. Because cannibalism features in a lot of aquaculture. It's not just lobsters. I know the barra farm has to get a lot of things right to stop it there, but tropical lobsters in particular are quite hungry of each other? Look... 
at a conference like this, you'll see nearly well, a large percentage of aquaculture species will de- demonstrate cannibalism. The difference between cannibalism and in fish, let's say, and cannibalism in a lobster is that in a fish it's very size-dependent, and it's size-dependent on how big the mouth of the fish is. So a bigger fish will only be able to cannibalise a smaller fish. The difference with lobsters is that it's not dependent on its mouth size because what they do is they actually tear the lobster apart. So a small lobster can actually cannibalise a large lobster. So a lot of people looking into this and looking for solutions. Can you rattle off some of the research that's been done in this space, trying to work it out. Look, we're, we're tackling this in a multi-prong approach and so one of the areas that we're looking at is tank systems and things that can actually segregate the animals when they're vulnerable. Um, I can't say too much about that because we've actually got a patent pendant on on that at this stage Um, but we're also really considering the behavioural aspects and the physiological aspects of the animals. We really need to understand what's driving this Um, and so we've done a lot of work trying to understand you know what is the triggers and what is the cues and um, yeah we're we're coming up with some really interesting findings. If tropical rock lobster is the holy grail of aquaculture is cannibalism the the, the really big challenge stopping it from happening? Look it's one of the keys right now. We have resolved so many challenges to get where we are at the moment and this is one of those remaining critical challenges that we just need to work out Look, we at the University of Tasmania have been working on lobster aquaculture for over 20 years. Um, There's been huge challenges that need to be overcome and the first part was the larval rearing side of things. Uh, Lobsters have probably the most longest and complex uh, marine larval life cycle of any cultured animal and so that was a um, a huge amount of work and we've had really significant breakthroughs with that. So um, based off that work, um, there is actually now the world's first lobster lobster hatchery and production unit that has been set up by our industry partners Ornitas in Townsville. How's it going? Oh look they're doing great work. Uh, It's amazing they presented here uh, at this conference this week and it's just absolutely fantastic to see the amount of effort and investment and progress that they're making. So they're now consistently producing thousands of little baby lobsters, something that no one else in the world has ever come close to be doing. And where are those lobsters going at the moment? So they've only just started their hatchery production and so now they're looking at the grow-out systems. And so ultimately these will in, you know, be introduced to the, to the market both nationally and internationally. Uh, but I guess f- for lobster farming to be successful researchers like yourself need to to crack this big challenge of cannibalism? Oh, look, research is required in all aquaculture. I'll I'll give you an example. Salmon aquaculture has been going on for decades and then you'll come to a conference like this and you'll still see a massive amount of research required still in such an established industry. Lobster aquaculture, look, it's at its infancy and so research will be required and continue to be required indefinitely. And for you... What drives your interest in lobsters? Oh, look, lobsters are an amazingly fascinating uh, creature. 
One of the things that fascinates me the most is their social structures and their behaviours. Interestingly, uh, a lobster actually wheeze out of its head. It's got these little glands uh, uh, just near its antenna and where it actually urinates. And it does this because it's able to send that urine as a message to other lobsters um, to say whether, oh, I really like you or I don't like you. And because of this complex communication, they have such interesting and fascinating social life, you know, life, you know, communities. It's fantastic. Is there anyone else in the animal kingdom that does that? That wheeze out of their heads? Yeah, I can't think so. Yeah, and particularly you know, weeing out of, your, out of your head to say that you like another a lobster. It's, it is an inter- interesting strategy. Yeah. <laughs> He's Quinn Fitzgibbon. He's an associate professor at the University of Tasmania, a bit of an expert there on rock lobsters. There you go. They wee out of their head and they love to eat each other. What strange creatures. G'day, it's Jeff Tucker from the Sydney Fish Market and you're listening to The Country Hour. Uh, Coming up soon, we're going to be talking about a potential looming shortage of Australian dried fruit. We're talking things like dried apricots, dried peaches and the like. Oh, I love to snack on a bit of dried fruit. What's gone wrong? You'll find out soon. It wouldn't take much to prove you wrong. Cheryl Crow there with Stevie Nicks and Marin Morris with Prove You Wrong here on the Country Hour on ABC Radio. Or do you enjoy a bit of dried fruit? If you're planning on buying some Aussie grown dried apricots and pears, then you better snap them up pretty quickly. The wetter, warmer weather down south has wreaked havoc across the southeast where they grow those sort of fruits, and led to significant crop damage and losses. It's also made drying the fruit much more challenging, as Eliza Burlage found out when she visited stone fruit grower Chris Werner in South Australia's Riverland. Well, you use a lot more chemical for starters, and I mean, we we started in November, which is very... We've never done that before. But we're just sort of three days into it and got 35 mils of rain, so that then turns the product... You've got to spray again, brown rock comes in, split fruit, fair bit drops on the ground, which you've got to clean up. So it was, it's been a challenge, but, you know, that's the industry. So, so when you see the rain start, the rain clouds cut, come, start coming in, yeah, what do you do? Do you sort of like you run to get the washing off the line? Do you run and grab the trays? Or? Well, the kids usually get the washing off the line and, and sometimes help us stack up. But, yeah, if, as soon as it looks like it's going to rain, everything's got to come off the drying green and go undercover. Some of it's got to go back into the sulphur tent. and It's yeah, one of those things. So. And how many times have you had to take them back into the sulphur tent compared to a regular season? Oh, last week, for instance, nearly every tray went through the sulphur twice. You don't give it a full dose the second time, but you've got to replace what's lost when it's laid out. And every tray probably last week would have been laid out four times. Four times? Yeah, patient, patient man. <laughs> well, you haven't got time for patience. You've just got to do it. So that's life. You know, it doesn't happen very often, but it does happen. So. And so um, adding more sulphur and, and taking more time to do the trays multiple times... What does that mean for, you know, your costs of production? Well, on a year like this where the production was down probably two-thirds anyway, you're adding 
exponentially probably another 30% on top of that in extra costs. And you say production was down about two-thirds, so that was because of uh, split fruit and, and brown rotten fruit from the rain? Oh, not so much. The crop wasn't there to start with. We, we, you know, we, we're waiting for this climate change stuff they're talking about because we want a, a cold night winter and we want nice hot summers, but we're not getting any of it at the moment. So, yeah, that was the biggest issue. There wasn't cold enough to actually set the fruit. How cold do you actually need it to set the fruit, and this, what did you get? This variety here, which is Hunter, needs 600 hours below 5 degrees. Do you know roughly? what you got instead oh this year it would have been lucky to be 300 like it was just terrible the days were cold but the nights were warm how does that compare to over the years have you had many spells like this where you haven't got the cold nights you get one ten i suppose but uh yeah it's just this year happened to come on back of hailstorms last year so it was just one of those things and you mentioned the hailstorms last year i know i've heard the last few years with uh, more rain and hailstorms have been really hard for stone fruit growers in Australia. What have you experienced and what have others experienced that you've heard of in the industry? Oh, well, I know of a, a fella in Berry that got hit two years in a row with hail and if you get a bad hailstorm, you get nothing. And then what you do get is marked and there's a very, very downgraded piece of fruit. So. For your fruit that gets downgraded, what can you do with it? We trim it as we're scraping it off um, throw it in a box for either what we call a slab or it goes to a bakery grade basically which price difference is say $18 back to about 6 to 8 so. so less than half less than half yep for consumers that are purchasing dried fruit, you know, these extra costs of production that you've had from weather that's a little bit wetter than normal, do the costs get passed on to any of your distributors or consumers? You try, but it doesn't work. So, no, technically you get nothing more. So. And are you likely to have any um, shortages in supply of any of your dried fruit this year? Yeah, we're, we're going to be quite short. I've actually told a couple of our normal customers that we can't supply this year, so, which is a pain because it takes a year to, years to build up a customer base. But what do you do? Like, it's a supply and demand situation. So. Of your dried fruit that you're expecting to have shortages in, is that any particular varieties that you're seeing and how much shorter are you expecting to be? Oh, well, we'd be half to two-thirds short and it's across all apricot varieties, basically. A lot of the Newer breed stuff wasn't too bad, but the, the Hunter and the, the Moor Park, they're all down, so that's just the way it is for this year. So. Yeah, it must be so hard to be in demand when you know the industries have a glut. Yeah, that, that's the other thing. I mean, we, we, we the industry as a whole can't supply Australia and then alone start the export, which we've got an exportable product, but if you haven't got it, you can't, you can't sell it. So. Dried Tree Fruit Australia Chair Chris Werner. Down the road from Mr Werner in Wakery is Karen Gorman, who runs gourmet food store Illalangi on the Sturt Highway. She's preparing to tell customers that some products will be unavailable this year. We mainly deal with two local growers, uh, Riverland growers that we've been dealing with for a number of years, and low fruit set, low poor drying conditions, all going to um, lead to, I think, a general... (laughs) shortage, uh, unfortunately, of beautiful Australian fruit. And are you expecting the shortage to be in any particular varieties or types of fruit? Pears are going to definitely be an issue because I get them from one grower. Peaches and apricots, so far, so good. But, yeah, it'll just be, as I said, because I've been working with these growers for a number of years, with relationships, and hopefully 
they can um, supply us with the volume we need. But yeah, pears will be the short, short one, definitely. That is Karen Gorman. She sells gourmet foods there in South Australia's Riverland and ending that report there by Eliza Burlage. <laughs> Time now in the country hour to head to the markets with all the details from Dublin, South Australia. We've got Delise Adamo. Agents offered 130 lightweight and open auction cattle with the usual buyers in attendance and operating. Quality was extremely mixed and pricing was erratic across the offering. Vila steers sold from 186 cents to 242 cents, as Vila heifers ranged from 186 cents to 282 cents. Yearling steers ranged from 208 cents to 306 cents, as yearling heifers sold from 220 cents to 274 cents. Grown heifers sold from 200 cents to 230 cents, as light cows sold from 70 cents to 150 cents, with the heavy cows ranging from 120 cents to a top of 239 cents. Bulls sold from 130 cents to 248 cents per kilogram. This has been Elsie Adamo filling in for John Traeger for the SA Livestock Exchange Market Report. Thanks for that, Elsie. In the live export trade, there's quotes out for feeder steers to Indonesia X Darwin for $3.10 per kilo. And just looking at the Darwin Port shipping schedule, the Nine Eagle is due in to the port tomorrow, heading out on Saturday. But that's about the only live export ship I can see scheduled at the moment. And that is it for the Country Hour for today. Uh, We'll be back live on your radio in the cricket lunch break. If you want to listen to us on the analogue, that is at 11.05 to 11.35, or we'll be back on the stream at 12.30 tomorrow. Take it easy.